These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Thanks again, Lord, for the gift of the food that we shared together this evening. Um, And thank you for all the folks that have gathered together in this room. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us now and that you would bless our reading and listening to your word um, as we attend the gift of scripture. Uh, Help us to be humble before it and help us to be addressed and comforted by you and what we share together tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple weeks back, uh, when we were reading about Isaac and Rebecca's wedding, we talked about the straightforward beauty of, of weddings and marriage. Uh, by the way, our, our newlywed couple is, is, re- is just out back in town from their honeymoon. Yeah. We talked about the recognizable and compelling goodness of the love of husband and wife. And that beauty and affection that we talked about that night is real and needs to be cherished. But as we continue in the story tonight, we recognize that just as real is the agony of betrayal and struggle and suffering that Isaac and Rebekah will cause to each other, that will be caused to them through no fault of their own, um, and that they will endure together, the pain that they're going to endure together as a family. So it is that we've no sooner heard of Isaac's marriage to Rebekah in verse 20 that we hear of Rebekah's barrenness in verse 21. Straight away, we're reminded in this passage of the inescapability of of the fall, of the world's being fallen. We're reminded of the fact that even even the best, most straightforwardly good things in our lives are marked by damage and corruption. Verse 21 reports Rebecca's barrenness, and it reports the resolution to her barrenness 
with such brevity that you can almost miss um, how prolonged and enduring and agony her childlessness must have entailed within her marriage. In the span of just one verse, Rebecca seems to have gone from being barren to being pregnant, and it, it seems almost as if that, that happened quickly. But actually, if you do a little bit of math, like if you sort of subtract like how old Isaac was whenever these kids are born versus how old they were whenever they got married, there's a period of 20 years, 20 years of marriage transpires of barrenness in which she's not able to conceive children. And so I just want to flag here that that whatever pain must have accompanied that, whatever uncertainty they must have been enduring as a family, it's quite prolonged that that's happening. And this verse reports it as, you know, Isaac goes and prays and then God delivers, but it may in fact be that for all 20 of those years that he was praying that same prayer. Nonetheless, it's clear that Isaac's response to Rebekah's barrenness is, is definitely the right one. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And yet again, in a fallen world, even God's provision, even clear answers to prayer, are never without complication. Immediately in the next verse, we read, the children struggled together within her. First of all, the fact that it's children, plural, already means that there's going to be um, an, an intensity of struggle for these parents. There are two of these jokers. So it's children, we know already at this point, it's twins, which suggests that God has not only answered this prayer, but that he's answered it with a kind of superabundance. But something is plainly wrong in this pregnancy, and it's indicated with that phrase, the children struggled within her. It's so obviously wrong that Rebecca cries out, if it is to be this way, why do I live? If, it is, if this is how it's going to be, then what's the point of living? You might be tempted to dismiss Rebecca as just being dramatic, but on closer consideration, I think this moment of questioning, this moment of asking a question that verges on despair, it should be relatable to us. In all likelihood, those 20 years that Rebecca's endured of being barren, those 20 years of yearning for children but never conceiving, probably had, had seriously eroded her hope. And then finally, perhaps at the moment when Rebecca had all but given up, God answers Isaac's prayer and she conceives. But then, just as the agony of barrenness seems finally to have been cleared away, immediately, with the gift of this pregnancy, right within the very thing Rebecca had so longed for, right within her very body, within her womb, new agonies, new lasting struggles and uncertainties begin to emerge. Rebecca's hardly had time to delight in her pregnancy before this new shadow falls across her future. So surely you can understand the feeling of defeat that she must have had in that moment of disappointment, of futility, or perhaps even of having been duped or tricked into being excited. So it is that she asks, what's the point? If it is to be this way, why do I live? Like Isaac, Rebecca turns to the Lord in prayer. At the end of verse 22, we read, So she went to inquire of the Lord. And verse 23 begins, And the Lord said to her, I just want to note here, God is nothing in this passage if not readily responsive to people who pray to him. 
she goes to inquire of the Lord. And, and then again, verse 23 begins, the Lord said to her. But in his answer, God is not exactly offering words of comfort or consolation. Indeed, this answer from God might sound something along the lines of, actually, Rebecca, it's even worse than you thought it was. So she knows something is wrong, and she goes to inquire from, of God what, what's going on, and he gives her an answer, which is great, you know, that he's responsive to her. But what he says is not so great. The Lord's answer makes it sound almost as if there's a war brewing in Rebecca's uterus, as if two opposing armies are squaring off against each other on the battlefield. Two nations are in your womb, he says. If Rebecca hoped for a life of familial harmony, she's going to be sadly disappointed. What's coming instead is division. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. Remember, moreover, that this pregnancy, this wrestling match in Rebecca's womb is God's answer to Isaac's prayer. Likewise, it's not as if in this moment that God responds to Rebecca when he answers her question, it's not, it's not as if he's just describing what's going to happen as a kind of passive observer looking, to, looking into a crystal ball. Instead, there's a sense of divine purpose in this reply. Like it's, there's a, we get the, the sense that God's got a hand in bringing about the future that he is prophesying in this moment. Throughout the rest of this family's story, we're going to see God's providence, like God's activity in history, we're going to see God's providence intermingled in surprising and inextricable ways with human scheming. Like in this story, it's often not easy or maybe even possible to say whether outcomes were caused by God or whether outcomes were caused by some conniving of human beings. Like these two things are remarkably bound up together in this family's story. The one shall be stronger than the other, God says. The older shall serve the younger. It's worth asking here whether or not these are contrasting statements or whether or not they're mutually reinforcing. So we know from reading on in the story that the second part is pretty straightforward. One of these two sons is going to be born like a second later, and so therefore will be the younger but what about that first statement? Which one of those two sons is the stronger? Um, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So are these contrasting statements or are they mutually reinforcing? I just think that's an interesting question, but let's move on. Whereas in Abraham's story, there's an almost insufferable delay until the arrival of Isaac. In Isaac and Rebekah's story, Isaac and Rebekah's story comes to be rapidly overshadowed by the story of their sons, even from the moment of their conception. Likewise, whereas in the previous generation, there's a distance that separates Ishmael and Isaac, a distance of years, and then, final, and then pretty quickly, like a, a geographic distance that separates them. The sons of Isaac and Rebekah are born of the same mother. They're in the same womb at the same time. They're twins. They literally come from the womb, already connected, already locked in a competitive struggle. And so the, there's a nearness here, and it's a contentious one. As twins, Esau and Jacob are anything but identical. Indeed, Genesis goes to almost hyperbolic extremes to emphasize the contrast between them. And one of these is like a, a, a wolf man, and the other one is a soft man. A smooth man, some translations say, dwelling in tents. At first glance, the upshot of the contrast seems to be that Esau 
has the decisive upper hand. He makes it out of the womb first, and when he grows up, he is decidedly manlier. If this was a horse race, you would be crazy not to bet on Esau. But on closer consideration, some of the very details that portray Esau's strength simultaneously forebode that he will not be the son who inherits Abraham's blessing. So, for example, in verse 27, we read that he was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And this pretty closely parallels some of the things that were said about Ishmael, um, who is not the son of Abraham, through whom the, uh, the covenant proceeds in previous chapters. Moreover, Jacob has strengths of his own. Indeed, the picture Genesis 25 paints at the very moment of Esau and Jacob's birth, it suggests that Esau's apparent triumph over Jacob is anything but decisive. It's anything but decisive, his, his triumph over Jacob and, and being the first to be born. Esau's in the lead. He makes it out of the womb first. But Jacob has him by the heel, which means that he's not done yet. You know, like round one, he may have lost, but he's not finished. And as the final verses of our reading make clear, the very vigor and manful strength that would seem to give Esau the upper hand turns out to contain serious weaknesses within it. So there's this brashness and um, almost like a brutality to Esau that leads him to, as it says in our final verse, um, to, um, what does it say? To what his birthright? Despise his birthright, yeah. Jacob, for his part, is possessed of a cunning, a calculating opportunism that is more than willing to capitalize on his brother's moments of weakness. And so he's emerging here as a serious contender, as a kind of small, wiry wrestler. He's squaring off, indeed, against a much larger and stronger opponent, but Jacob knows how to use his opponent's weight and strength against him so that Esau will help to defeat himself. You tracking with me there in this wrestling stuff? I was never a wrestler, but I wish I had been. That would have been cool. Anyway, <clears throat> what's more, Jacob has his mom on his side. We read in this passage, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And that, at least from an earthly perspective, will end up being the deciding factor between the boys. Lastly, I just want to say here, somewhat as a sidebar, to note right now the significance of food. Uh, and I'm not going to say a ton about this tonight, but note the significance of food in this passage. First of all, food is really at the heart of familial intimacy and really of relational intimacy of any kind. It's obviously been at the heart of the story of Genesis. There's been some major forks in the road in the book of Genesis around food. But note here the way that meals are often a poignant touchstone of relational connection. So, like, here's a quick story from time at my therapist, um, between me and my therapist. One time my therapist and I were talking about, um, I don't know how we got on this topic, but, oh, we were, I was telling her the story. I, if you're ever in premarital counseling, I'll tell the story again. I just told the story to Camille and Keen recently. But Holly and I just gotten married. Have I told the story here, here before about this chicken casserole thing? I just don't want to be a grandpa that's, like, constantly repeating myself. But anyway, so Holly and I had just gotten married. We've been married for, like, two weeks. We're living over on Sybil here in Ruston. And we were figuring out how to cook for ourselves and buy groceries and stuff. And we were, we were, one night we were like having pillow talk in bed and we were talking about what meals we could cook, you know, because we'd been eating like 
pasta with feta cheese and beans, and it was terrible. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, oh, we should make this. We should make chicken divans. This is, this is this meal, this chicken casserole that my mom made me ever since I was a little kid. And it's like the thing that like when I go home to visit my family, like my mom has it coming out of the oven like when I get home. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like my favorite meal since I was a little kid. And I was like, oh, I should get the recipe for chicken divans so we can, we can cook that. And like by this point, you know, Holly and I had been dating for a while. And we're married now. So she's eaten chicken divan a couple times. And uh, she was like, yeah, I don't know. I really don't like it that much. Aww. And uh, I was just like silent for a long time there in the dark. <laughs> and then I proceeded to just cry like a freaking baby. I just sobbed. And it was like this really bewildering moment um, for my wife, my brand new wife. She's like, whoa, like, why is this such a third rail thing for you, you know? So anyway, to fast forward, like, years later. Yeah, don't talk about the chicken divan. Uh, so years later, this came up uh, in, in uh, a meeting with my therapist, and, and she was like, oh, she, she was like cracking up. She was like, I just can't imagine you as a kid, like on a desert island, and like all you have is this chicken divan. Like that's, and like there's some, it's funny, right? But there actually is some sadness that really in my family's story that, that's like, that's kind of true. Like maybe that's, that is kind of, that was the real, that was the one real point, not the only one, but, but one really special point of connection that I had to my, my parents in a relationship that was largely not characterized by much connection. So anyway, that's just one way of illustrating the way that, that food is intimate and that, and that um, it's, it's often a touchstone of relational connection. But in this story, food is also going to be the vehicle of betrayal and of usurpation and of deception. And anyway, at any rate, that was just supposed to be a sidebar. So let, let's talk a little bit about... Um, let me say a bit about how we might respond to this passage or how we might find ourselves addressed by this passage. As a way of focusing our response to this passage, I want to hone in again on Rebecca's desperate question. If it is to be this way, why do I live? And to start off with, I just want to ask, like, what is the it for you in that sentence? You know, if it is to be this way, why do I live? What's the it for you in that sentence? What's gone wrong in your life or what could go wrong in your life that would lead you to ask questions like that one? Surprisingly, the answer to that question, like what's the it for you, what's gone wrong for you in your life that might lead you to ask questions like that? Surprisingly, the answer to that question usually starts off with something that went right. Okay? It usually starts off by answering something that went right. Remember that this, this moment comes as it, on the heels of God having provided something, that something's going wrong with something that God gave, or something seems to be going wrong with something God gave. There isn't anything so good in our lives. There isn't, there isn't any gift even from God. There isn't anything so good that it can't potentially lead us to the brink of despair. There isn't anything so good that seeing that thing damaged doesn't have the potential to really wreck your hope. And you aren't going to have anything in this life that doesn't get damaged or that its imperfection isn't revealed or that doesn't decay or that doesn't disappoint. What, if anything, does this passage offer us as an answer to Rebecca's question? If this is how it's going to be, why do I live? How can we live in a world that's still fallen, a world where even the best, even the most straightforwardly good things in our life 
Things like marriage and children, even the best, most straightforwardly good things in our life, are marked by damage and corruption. So, like, what we're seeing in the womb of Rebecca is, you know, we're hearing the blood of Abel crying out from the ground, and we're recognizing that the blood of Cain runs in our veins. This is damage and corruption in creation in the struggle between these two siblings. More specifically, how are we to endure the corruption and the damage that we experience in our relationships? Every good relationship the Lord conceives, even the ones that God conceives, they come to be assailed at some point by conflict, by struggle, by at least a temptation to try to gain the upper hand, whether by force or by subterfuge and deceit. How do we endure the corruption and damage that comes to our relationships? Again, this goes for the relationships that God conceives in the womb of the church as much as for relationships that God conceives in any other place. Um, We say whenever we celebrate communion that God is like a mom giving birth to the church by the baptism of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. God gives birth to the church, we say. But We are in the womb together, fighting like Esau and Jacob, if we're honest. That's how we come out of the womb of the church. We come out of the wombs of our mothers into our families in this kind of struggle. And we even come out of the waters of baptism like this. Like Jacob and Esau, we contend with our sisters and brothers instinctively. I mean, these are not conscious, like, I mean, maybe they're conscious in some way, but not in a way they're going to have any memory of. It's not like they've been arguing about something in the womb. There's an instinctive level conflict that's happening here. And we come out of the womb like that, instinctively, unthinkingly, automatically contending with our sisters and brothers. Like Jacob and Esau, the contrast between ourselves, between our particular personhood and everyone else's, like who we specifically are, by comparison to everyone else. It's never unharassed. It's always haunted by a scarcity, a feeling of scarcity for affection and approval, which is what's indicated by like, um, Isaac loved this one, Rebecca loved the other one. We can't simply be ourselves, it seems like, in this world. Instead, every facet of our personhood, every dimension of contrast between us and everyone else seems freighted either with opportunity for gain, to gain the upper hand, or freighted with an opportunity to to find ourselves not having the upper hand, to come in second. Every aspect of who we are seems fraught with either advantage or disadvantage in a struggle against everyone else. So again, I want to ask, what, if anything, does this passage offer us as an answer to Rebecca's question? If this is how it's going to be, and it is, Why then do I live? Well, modest as it may seem, the passage clearly teaches that prayer is the means by which we can endure life in a fallen world. So the difference that prayer can make is that we are daunted by human brokenness. Um, We are daunted by struggle and strife, but God is not. God is not alarmed by what's going on in 
uh, Rebecca's womb in this passage. We can find ourselves in a cycle of thinking that there isn't really much of a point in going on once we found off, once we found out enough times how damaged things really are. We can find ourselves in a cycle of feeling like things are not going to get better and therefore there isn't any point in hoping for much of anything. And then all of a sudden, some prayer will be answered. Perhaps after a time where we had stopped even praying for the thing anymore and hope revives. God gives us the thing that we asked for. And then somehow, to our surprise and our dismay, fallenness manifests itself in that thing that God provides. And it becomes easy to forget that this thing that now seems partially ruined was in fact an answer to prayer. It becomes easy to forget that God responded to our travail before and that as such, whenever this new agony emerges, that we have every reason to expect that he will respond again. It becomes easy even to ask, if this is how it's going to be, why do I live? To make the mistake of thinking that life isn't worth living in the face of damage and corruption. Why indeed should we live? Why not rather give up? We should go on living because God goes on responding to our exasperated and desperate prayers. Because sometimes, sometimes after a long time, God gives us what we were asking for. And because when we inquire about the further agonies that come along with those answers to prayer, he doesn't keep silence forever. Because even when God's reply to our prayer is harrowing, it's also truthful. And contained in God's answers is the fact that God is moving all things inexorably toward healing. Even in his answer to Rebecca, there is the promise that God is taking things to a place and a time that will not be characterized by this kind of division. We should live because Jesus has shown us a way to flourish outside of the seemingly unending wrestling match with our siblings. At this point in the biblical story, like just this tiny little snapshot from Genesis chapter 25 tonight, at this point in the biblical story, it might almost seem as if God is indifferent to this sibling strife that's going on in Rebecca's womb. But in reality, God's not going to leave this unaddressed. Like, he does care. He's not just this passive observer. Even in the immediate proximity of this passage, within the next several chapters of Genesis, God's going to catch up to Jacob eventually. Like, right now, Jacob has his brother by the heel. And if you know the story, you know that he's going to eventually win. That, that wrestling match. But God is eventually going to catch up with him. And Jacob won't come out of his wrestling match with God unscathed. And that's good news. That's really good news. But later, much later in the biblical story, Jesus is going to tirelessly confront this instinctive drive that we have to gain the upper hand over one another. He will relentlessly challenge this in his closest followers. Patiently, repetitively, over and over, Jesus will show us a pattern of deliberately lowering ourselves, of relinquishing the, the advantage that we could have over one another, and of making other people more important than ourselves. Instead of grabbing one another by the heel, Jesus washes the feet of his students. See what I did there? <laughs> we can go on living... Because as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, God has made a different way available to us in Jesus. 
instead of competition, instead of levering every possible advantage available to us and of exploiting every possible weakness in others, we can live like Christ, who though he was God, emptied himself and was born a human being. We can go on living because from the womb of Mary came the one who would turn the other cheek, who would refuse retaliation, and so who would bring us peace. Amen.